President Biden is in Israel this morning in an effort to slow down the conflict nearly two weeks after Hamas fighters killed hundreds of Israelis. It's Wednesday, October 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the latest on the war. Hundreds are reported dead in an explosion at a hospital in the Gaza Strip. Both sides are blaming each other for the blast. Also this hour. No person having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker has not been elected. Ohio Republican Jim Jordan falls 20 votes short in his bid to become Speaker of the House. He says he'll try again today in a second vote. And we highlight Cambridge musician Arsam Fahim, who's from Afghanistan and is raising awareness about the brutality of the Taliban. I feel like I'm on the front line of a war against barbarity. Partly sunny today in the 60s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden has arrived in Israel today for consultations with leaders there. He's now meeting with the Israeli War Cabinet. In remarks given just now, Biden said, quote, we will continue to have Israel's back as you work to defend your people. He spoke earlier today, but Biden didn't take reporters' questions. NPR's Tamara Keith reports from Tel Aviv. Biden discussed yesterday's deadly explosion at a hospital in Gaza that killed hundreds of people. The deadly explosion threatened to upend Biden's trip, with Hamas casting blame on Israel and Israel insisting it wasn't them. Biden said he was deeply saddened and outraged by the loss of life. Based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not not you. But there's a lot of people out there not sure. So we got a lot. We got to overcome a lot of things. The second half of Biden's planned trip was canceled after Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas declared three days of mourning following the hospital explosion. Biden told Netanyahu, "Israel has a right to defend itself, but the world is watching how it responds to the Hamas attacks." Adding, "Hamas does not represent all Palestinian people." Tamara Keith, NPR News, Tel Aviv. White House officials say that President Biden will speak by phone to Palestinian leader Abbas and the president of Egypt. Those calls will happen when Biden is flying home from Israel. Other nations have expressed horror at the number of people killed in the hospital strike. NPR's Peter Kenyon has more. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said he was horrified by the heavy death toll from the explosion at Al-Ahli Baptist Hospital in the Gaza Strip. He appealed to Hamas to unconditionally release hostages and to Israel to allow immediate unrestricted access to humanitarian aid for Gaza. Russian media described the hospital explosion as a crime and an act of dehumanization, calling on Israel to provide satellite images to prove it wasn't behind the strike. Israel blames the Palestinian Islamic Jihad movement for the explosion. The group released a statement calling the accusations, quote, false and baseless. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. Biden's trip today comes as the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is set to hold a confirmation hearing on his nominee to be ambassador to Israel. Biden tapped former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew, who served in the Obama administration. The House of Representatives still doesn't have a speaker. Ohio Republican Congressman Jim Jordan failed to get enough GOP votes to win. House Republicans say they'll try again today. Democrats are united behind their leader, Hakeem Jeffries of New York. He has suggested the Democrats would be open to working with interim speaker Patrick McHenry. I think he is respected on our side of the aisle. There are a whole host of other Republicans who are respected on our side of the aisle. Jim Jordan is not one of them. Until the House chooses a speaker, all business is frozen. 
It's NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Healy wants lawmakers to approve a $4 billion plan for affordable housing. That's more than double the amount of the last major housing bond bill, which passed five years ago. WBUR's Todd Wallop reports Healy will unveil her plan later this morning. The proposal comes at a time when the state's emergency shelter system is running out of room and apartments are in short supply. Massachusetts Housing Secretary Ed Augustus briefed reporters on the plan. This is breaking the mold in terms of what we're asking for and the percent increase uh, because we think that's what the moment demands, that's what the housing crisis uh, needs in order to really move the needle. The bill includes tax credits and legal changes to help spur new construction, like letting homeowners build small apartments on their lots. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. The Boston City Council is expected to take up a resolution today in support of Israel. Councilor Michael Flaherty is behind the motion. He's asking his colleagues to strongly condemn the deadly attacks by Hamas on Israel. The resolution also calls on the federal government to provide whatever assistance it can to the state of Israel. State Attorney General Andrea Campbell is settling fraud allegations against some autism services providers. The settlements total more than $2.5 million. Two companies, one in Worcester and one in Framingham, are accused of submitting claims to MassHealth for services not provided by properly credentialed workers. A third company, based in Westboro, allegedly billed for services that were not provided, not properly documented, or not properly supervised. A Wakefield man has been indicted on charges of supporting ISIS. Federal prosecutors say 18-year-old Matteo Ventura is charged with buying gift cards and selling them on the dark web. The profits from those gift cards were meant to go to the terrorist organization. He was arrested back in June. If convicted, he could face up to 10 years in prison. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. And Bass Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. In preseason basketball last night, the Celtics beat the New York Knicks 123 to 110. Partly sunny today with a chance for showers this afternoon. It'll be in the 60s. Partly cloudy overnight and down to the 40s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the upper 60s. Right now it's 51 degrees in Boston at 707. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Paramount Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Killers of the Flower Moon starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro and directed by Martin Scorsese. Only in theaters, October 20th, rated R.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Israeli and Palestinian authorities are trading blame over just who is responsible for the strike that killed hundreds at a hospital in Gaza. Yeah, that's right. Uh, doctors there tell NPR they are still uncovering more bodies this morning. The incident has also led to massive protests across much of the Arab world. Joining us now with the latest is NPR's Ruth Sherlock from Tel Aviv. And I'm going to let you know that from what I understand, some of the details Details will be very disturbing for some to hear. Ruth, that being said, what are you hearing about this attack? Good morning. Well, yeah, this was a massive explosion at the Baptist Al Ahli Hospital. It's a Christian hospital and one of the oldest in Gaza. I reached Dr. Fadl Naim, so he's the orthopedic, uh, the head of the orthopedic unit there, and he's still there because he says that there are injured patients that still need to be evacuated. He was in the operating room when he heard this huge explosion and people flooded in wounded. It's a bad phone line, but he tells me he ran outside and found the area full of injured and dead. Uh, Injured and dead people. Uh, We uh, tried to help what we can, uh, who we can help. Some of them uh, died in our hands. He said some people died in his hands. Many had lost limbs and the doctors were using whatever they had on them, bandages, their clothes, to try to stop the bleeding. And like you said, you know, we don't know the full death toll, but it seems in the many hundreds. Dr. Naim says they're still finding new dead, including bodies flung in the force of the blast onto the roof of the hospital. And- okay, we found uh, one baby, a baby on the roof of the hospital. A baby? Yeah. Many babies died yesterday. Many babies. So Naim says the strike on the hospital hit this inner courtyard that had become an area that was also housing hundreds of people that have been displaced by the wider fighting in Gaza. It was full of families, he said, many children. He says with this being a hospital and a Christian one at that, people believed that it was maybe the safest place in Gaza. Ruth, what do we know about just who is responsible for this? Well, you know, like you said, both sides are trading blame. Israel says it was the result of a failed rocket launch by Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Uh, The Israeli Defense Forces are putting out some footage and a recording they claim is a conversation between a Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad official allegedly talking about the misfire. But I should say, uh, you know, really clearly, NPR cannot independently verify any of this. And we do know from past wars that there have been Palestinian rockets that have fallen short inside Gaza. But at the very same time, you know, this hospital said just a few days ago that it was hit by Israeli rocket fire just a few days ago. And this is all happening amid intense fighting. You know, there's 3,000 Palestinian people killed, according to the Ministry of Health. 1,000 of those kids, 10,000 people have been wounded. So, Ruth, I mean, and, and of course, you've been reporting on, and you, among others, have been reporting on just the humanitarian situation there before this attack. So I can only imagine that this, that, that this terrible incident is just adding even more pressure to the humanitarian needs there. Right. One of the head of the main hospital says that, uh, you know, Al-Shifa says they're going to run out of fuel today. Taps are also running dry in Gaza because there's no fuel for desalination plants. People are struggling to find drinking water. Um, Much of the population is fleeing south, but with nowhere to go. The border with Egypt is still closed. And Gazans I speak with say at this point, nowhere feels safe. That is NPR's Ruth Sherlock. Ruth, thank you so much. Thank you.
The White House says President Biden will be asking tough questions of Israeli officials during his meetings in Tel Aviv today. His arrival comes as Israel prepares for a ground offensive in Gaza. And the president's national security spokesman, John Kirby, says Biden will be asking for more information about Israel's objectives. To get a deeper sense of what President Biden hopes to achieve, we've called up Henri Barkey. He's a professor of international relations at Lehigh University and also adjunct senior fellow for Middle East studies at the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, Professor, what should President and Biden's key objective be for this trip? Well, initially, his key objective was A, to show solidarity with Israel at a time when the country is suffering from probably its worst shock in its history. The second was probably to start a process to release the hostages and look for ways to calm things down and explore prospects for to stop maybe the incursion into, into Gaza. But all this has now been... Uh, overplayed, if you want, by the hospital crisis. So what Biden wants to do now is probably figure out a way to ask the Israelis what it is they have in mind, because an incursion into Gaza is will be extremely messy. After all, this is a, a, a place teeming with civilians, and, the, and Hamas and Islamic Jihad are all embedded in that civilian population. So how do you deal with it and how long will you stay? And that's an impossible situation, but the Israelis need something. You, may, you mentioned, you mentioned so, that, that maybe part of his objective should be to calm things down, um, but considering that he has seemingly accepted Israel's version of what happened to that hospital, is that possible now? Well, I, I actually think that by accepting Israel's version, he is calming things down on the Israeli side. Because, look, the Israelis have no reason to, to bomb a hospital. It doesn't make sense, right? And they also have provided the Americans with necessary intelligence. And they're not going to give false intelligence to the, to their most um, important allies. So I suspect the story that the Israelis are putting out is correct. That doesn't mean that um, the Palestinians, the Arab world, and the sympathizers will accept this, this version, but it is important for the United States to accept it and for the Europeans, and then that you can put pressure on the Arab leaders to do something. Look, at the root of this now is other hostages. If something happens to the hostages, or if the hostage crisis is not uh, settled, right, the the incursion will go will go on, and it will be very very bloody. So what Biden was trying to do from the beginning was to f- focus on the on the hostages. We'll see how much ability he has at this stage. But we have to really, really focus on the on the hostages because for the Israelis, the hostages have become the most important thing. Right. Far what more what could he what offer, even... though? What could President Biden offer at this point or bring to the table to try and get those hostages or even de-escalate what's happening? Well, look, the United States has a great deal of uh, military force out there. Some of the hostages are Americans, uh, and many of them are also other European nationals. So he has to bring all of the European countries and 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 make it make it very, very clear that the United States will not prevent these areas from going in if something were to happen to the hostages. Right. Uh, I mean, in in other words, he has to use very, very uh, strong language and imply that American power may be may be used also 
I mean, this you, you need at this stage to scare the Hamas and its supporters into action. Right. The other thing, of course, is how, how would he be able to frighten to them? Though, how would he be able, to, be able to scare them? Well, just by saying that. Look, look, United States has sent in, in a large number of special forces. The British have sent special forces. There's a there's two na- 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 uh, carrier groups now in in the region. This is enormous amount of um, power, which can be used not just not necessarily for bombing, but can be used for uh, electronic uh, um, pressure. Can 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 try to hamper Hamas. There's many things that the United States can do that at this stage we do not know. I mean, the capabilities of those two carrier groups is formidable, right? And and I'm sure Biden is going to make sure that um, both Hamas and and the Egyptians, the, yeah. the Palestinians, know about this. Henri Barclay is a professor of international relations at Lehigh University. Professor, thank you. Thank you. More than 150 million Americans get health insurance through their jobs. A new report just out this morning shows that monthly costs for those health plans rose this year. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin tells us that that could be the start of an upward trend. Every year, a team from the nonpartisan health research group KFF calls companies all over the country to ask about their health plans and then analyzes the answers. Thank you for calling Haynes Group. Please listen carefully as our One of the people who answered the survey this year was Maria Roy. Maria, may I help you? She is VP of Human Resources for Haynes Inc., a family-owned quarry, retail, and development business in Connecticut. Our plan from 2023, the increase was 3 or 4%. Another person KFF reached was Jennifer De La Fuente, controller for TriFab Associates, a precision sheet metal and machining shop in Fremont, California. Their premiums went up even more. So for 2023, it increased by like 6 or 7%. 7% was actually the national average increase in premiums for employer-sponsored health insurance in 2023. That's according to KFF's new analysis, co-authored by Matthew Ray. Clearly, inflation has come with higher wage growth, and higher wage growth is what hits healthcare costs as all providers start asking for more money along the supply chain, and they have to pass on to premiums. So that absolutely is having an effect on this number. He calls the 7% increase a huge jump, but it could turn out to be puny compared to what's coming next year. Roy in Connecticut believes their premiums will be up 12% or more, although she hasn't seen the renewal yet. De La Fuente has seen what's coming, and it is not good. For 2024, it's going to increase by 25%. That is shocking. (laughs) Our people are going to freak. She says they've always had a generous health plan, and that's part of why their workers stay, which matters in a tight labor market. The company's now looking at options, like maybe changing the plan or how it's funded. De La Fuente is worried about it and what it means for workers' budgets and their health. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in a few minutes on Morning Edition, the U.S. House is set to vote again this morning on the nomination of Ohio Representative Republican Jim Jordan to be the next House Speaker. Jordan failed to get enough support in a vote yesterday. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. And the Boston Antiquarian Book Fair. Rare books, maps, and prints at the Heinz, Friday, October 27th through Sunday, October 29th. BostonBookFair.com. Can the U.S. stand with Israel even as it stands with Ukraine without compromising American military readiness? We are quite confident that we can continue to support both countries as they cope. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We ask the U.S. ambassador to NATO about providing weapons and aid to two allies at once. On the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. A reminder for T-Riders, buses are replacing red line trains between JFK UMass and Ashmont, as well as on the Mattapan trolley line. The closure will last through October 29th. Because of the closure, the Fairmount line of the commuter rail and T-Bus Route 18 are both free. There's a slight chance of showers late this afternoon, otherwise a mix of sun and clouds today with a high near 64. Tonight, more clouds move in as it falls to a low around 48. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 66. Right now, it's 51 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at FJC.org. From National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Martinez. All right, so imagine setting out to write a definitive book on a singular figure, and before you're done writing, the hero of the story becomes a villain to many. That's what has happened to two of the most prominent chroniclers of American life, Michael Lewis and Walter Isaacson. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik talked with them about what happened. Walter Isaacson, your book is on Elon Musk, the force behind PayPal, SpaceX, Tesla, and now X, what we all used to call Twitter. How did you convince Musk to give you so much access for this book? It was a bit of a surprise because I talked to him by phone and I said, I don't want to do a book based on five or 10 or 15 interviews. I don't want to do a conventional book like that. I want to be by your side for two years in every meeting that I want to be in. Nothing excluded. And he went, oh, okay. And then I said, but here's the other part of the deal. I don't want you to have any control over it, and I'm not going to let you read it before it's published. And he went, oh, okay. 
And I was kind of stunned. And then a few minutes later, somebody said, wow, you're doing Musk. I said, how do you know? He said, well, he just tweeted out, Walter's writing my biography. And so that's how I got on the roller coaster somewhat unexpectedly. Michael Lewis, same to you. You met FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried when he seemed like the golden boy of cryptocurrency. Now, of course, he's on trial facing charges of massive fraud. At the opening of this project, how did you convince him to let you into his life to such a vast degree? It didn't take anything. I mean, I I was introduced to him by a third party who wanted me to get to know him so I could evaluate him for a business deal. And I spent a couple of hours with him. At the end of it, the the sort of stuff that was coming out of his mouth was so interesting to me that I just said, I don't know what I'm going to do or where you're going to go or how this is going to end, but can I just watch? He, he 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 never asked me what I was up to. He kind of left me alone. And it's odd, you know, it's odd that people do this, that Elon Musk and Sam Bankman-Fried do this, but I think in some ways their characters rhyme a bit. You know, it's funny listening to the two of you, it strikes me that you each in this case have focused on people who are shorn of emotional receptors, right, of what we used to call emotional IQ, and yet you guys are overloaded with it, right? You guys in, so, in some ways are both able to absorb. Do you think that's absorb. true, Walter? Do you think that's true? I absolutely do think it's true. Both you and I came out of the tradition here in New Orleans where there were preachers and there were storytellers, and we took the fork in the road saying we're going to be a storyteller. And it's partly because we like observing roguish and wild and interesting individuals. So you have this sense of ability to empathize through these emotional intelligence. You also have the desire to tell a story and, you know, drawn to the roguish and fascinating figure, right? So the interest is clear and palpable. And even so, here's a guy who's destroyed much of the utility and the financial value of Twitter. And he's also revealed himself on that platform to hold or at least promote and embrace some truly hateful stuff. So to what degree in this storyteller's mode, did you feel you also had to try to hold on to a sense of any critical distance? Totally. I mean, I, especially when it came to Twitter, which, uh, you know, at times I, it, my head would snap. I'd be appalled at the things he'd be reposting. And so I had to keep my head around very contradictory things, which is the awesome ability to, say, connect solar roofs to power walls and the engineering, while also holding into the fact that his lack of emotional receptors and his sort of dark streak from childhood allows him to promote conspiracy theories when he takes over Twitter. Are we living in a moment where it's harder to write a book about an antihero without providing the condemnation from the outset? I don't know that it's harder to write about an anti-hero. I think it is harder this day and age to write about somebody who's complex, who is bringing us into the era of sustainable energy and electric vehicles, and also somebody who has this quality that comes out badly on Twitter. So in this day and age, we have snap judgments. People want you to be outraged one side or the other. With hindsight, do either of you ever feel like you were kind of swept into those vortex of these larger-than-life figures? There are ever moments where you kind of set aside what you would think if it were somebody you hadn't hung around with so much? Can I quickly answer that? Because I was going to – that came up earlier and I had this thought that yeah. I've never had so little trouble keeping a feeling of distance from a character because the character kept a feeling of distance from me. That I've never had anybody feel so little for me. So I didn't have any trouble feeling so little for him. 
It's funny, when reading the book, I felt that you were really fond of him and amused by him in the same way. I regarded him right from the beginning as walking social satire and loved his company. Still love his company. I wish I could be in his jail cell with him for a night. Because he entertained you. He's, he's just, int- what's going on around him and his view of the world is interesting. Kara Swisher, who of course is one of the most prominent journalists covering Silicon Valley, has sort of led a pack of critics of your book, Walter, in saying, you know, basically saying, it seems to me, you aren't explicit enough about calling out what Musk has done as wrong at key points. It's such is there... BS. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm going to defend Walter because he shouldn't have to defend himself. The... I'm happy. No, I'm sorry. Let me just go because I've read the book. Podcast. I've read the book. And the critics themselves are often relying on what Walter has supplied to attack the book and attack the character. Like they wouldn't know what they know without Walter's book. All they're supplying is moral outrage. Who wants that? That's not the writer's purpose here. And it's not a tool for enlightening anybody. Walter, do you want to add anything to that? Well, I do think that I try to tell a story and I love the people who say, okay, you should have come down harder and made judgments. But the judgments are there in the stories. And I guess my goal is to tell the story as straight as I could and as honestly as I could and let the reader have some control over the reader's own moral judgments. Walter Isaacson and Michael Lewis, thanks so much. Hey, thank you, David. Totally fun. Thanks for having me. That's NPR's David Folkenflik speaking with Walter Isaacson and Michael Lewis. Isaacson is the author of a new biography of Elon Musk, and Lewis has written Going Infinite about FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, our week-long series on local artists continues with a spotlight today on Cambridge pianist and composer Arsam Fahim, who's raising awareness about the Taliban's brutality. It's 729. There's nothing like live radio with the WBUR app. You can listen live on the road, on a walk, and in the kitchen. Get the free WBUR app today. WBUR supporters include MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. And New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Open house tomorrow night, neiacademy.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is in Tel Aviv today, reaffirming U.S. support to Israel ahead of an expected Israeli ground assault in Gaza targeting Hamas. Biden arrived a day after an explosion at a hospital in the Gaza Strip left hundreds dead. NPR's Ruth Sherlock is in Tel Aviv. This was a massive explosion at the Baptist Al-Ahli Hospital. It's a Christian hospital and one of the oldest in Gaza. The head of the orthopedic unit there says that there are injured patients that still need to be evacuated. Standing alongside Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Biden said it appears Israel was not responsible for the hospital blast. 
Hamas blames an Israeli airstrike. Israel says it was caused by an errant rocket fired by Islamic Jihad. The House is still without a replacement for ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Twenty Republicans voted against fellow GOP lawmaker Jim Jordan of Ohio yesterday. NPR's Giles Snyder says a second vote on Jordan's nomination is expected today. The top Democrat in the House, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, says it's time for Republicans to work with Democrats to get the House back on track. He's calling the situation unreal, unbelievable, and unacceptable. Speculation is focusing on temporarily giving more authority to interim Speaker Patrick McHenry in order to get the House back to work. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today on Beacon Hill, lawmakers in the state house will vote on a sweeping gun reform bill. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the legislation is facing stiff resistance from gun owners and local police chiefs. The bill would strengthen the state's assault weapons ban and expand the red flag law, which allows a judge to suspend the gun license of somebody who might pose a risk of harm to themselves or others. It would also restrict gun owners from carrying in public places like schools and polling centers. Webster Police Chief Michael Shaw says there should be a carve-out for off-duty officers. Now, if they're going to have these places where, you know, off-duty active law enforcement officers or retired law enforcement officers aren't allowed to go, I mean, I think it raises, it's a public safety issue. Supporters say Massachusetts already has among the lowest rates of gun violence in the country, and further restrictions will make it even safer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The state Senate may not take up the measure until next year. Some advocates for the unhoused say they're concerned Massachusetts will soon be unable to offer temporary housing to eligible families. That's despite the state's 40-year-old right-to-shelter law. Governor Healy announced this week the state's family shelter system is expected to reach capacity by the end of the month. At that point, the governor says people with health and safety risks will be prioritized for housing. Andrea Park is a housing attorney with the Massachusetts Law Reform. Institute. To hear that there may be a triage and that there may be a wait list and these types of things is extremely concerning and does not fulfill that legal obligation, um, but we'll need to see what the plan is. The governor's office says the stress on the shelter system is being driven in part by the number of migrant families arriving in Massachusetts in need of housing. Boston officials plan to help building owners who want to convert their office space into housing units. A new program provides a tax incentive for building owners who choose to convert their downtown office space. The plan comes after the pandemic reduced the number of people going into offices downtown. City officials also hope it'll help with the housing shortage. Officials say applications will be accepted through next year. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. A high in the mid-60s today under partly sunny skies. There's a slight chance of showers late this afternoon. Tonight it grows mostly cloudy and we'll have lows in the upper 40s. Mostly sunny tomorrow with a high back in the mid-60s. Right now it's 51 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet 
for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Congress remains at a standstill. The House of Representatives has now gone two weeks without a speaker. House Republican Jim Jordan, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, was nominated, but he failed to win the gavel in a first round of votes yesterday. No person having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker has not been elected. Jordan could only afford to lose a handful of Republican votes. Instead, 20 voted against him. Now, he wants to try again today to see if he can flip enough votes, enough no votes, to occupy the Speaker's chair. NPR's congressional correspondent, Claudia Grisales, joins us this morning. Claudia, quite a show in the House yesterday. What happened? Right. A, good to be with you. He faced a deep deficit when it came to the conference in overcoming the votes that were against him. A final tally, internal tally, showed that he still had 40 Republicans who were going to vote against him last week. And he made a lot of progress over the weekend. Some of Jordan's supporters left a conference meeting earlier this week saying that as few as six might vote against him on the floor. But they were pretty off with the 20 who voted against Jordan. That even surprises detractors who I spoke with after the vote, like Florida Congressman Carlos Jimenez. He and others I talked to are still pretty dug in. And in the end, a lot of those no's were members of the House Appropriations and Armed Services Committees, including the chair of the House Appropriations Committee, Kay Granger, who all remember Jordan's fights against government funding. Yeah, so House Republicans have seen this fight over and over again, and they seem like they're impossibly divided. So what can Jim Jordan do to somehow court the opposition? Yeah, that's what is not clear at this stage. Many of these detractors are still mad that Kevin McCarthy was ousted by just eight members of the conference earlier this month. And they're also mad how House Majority Leader Steve Scalise was elected as a nominee last week behind closed doors. Jordan had come in second, but he was forced to step down when Jordan and his allies did not show enough support for him. I talked to Michigan Republican Bill Heisinga about this. He voted for Jordan, but he said there's a lot of factors here at play, including how this entire process is played out. There's hurt feelings and pinched fingers over you know, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise and you know the, how we even got ourselves into this. And uh, that, that's probably driving as much of it as anything. And he says it's possible that Jordan could lose even more votes in a second round. I've heard also from a lot of members who are angry with the tactics Jordan and his allies have used to try to flip votes in his favor. They said it's had the opposite effect and backfired. So I mentioned that, you know, House is paralyzed right now. They do have an acting speaker, Patrick McHenry. Could his powers be expanded on a temporary basis, maybe? We are hearing about this a lot more from Republicans, including these detractors such as Carlos Jimenez and others who say that's the best bet now since House Republicans are struggling to get on the same page. We also heard from Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries last night that members of his party could help make this happen through a vote on the House floor with Republicans. But many remain opposed to such a move in the conference unless the conference decides to move forward with such a move. Any one at all that Republicans can agree on? It really doesn't seem like it, but they really need to get there. They have under a month to address a government shutdown deadline, as well as concerns to start moving on aid for Israel. NPR's congressional correspondent, Claudia Grisales, thanks a lot. Thank you.
The impact of the war between Israel and Hamas is causing reverberations throughout Europe. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports that tensions are especially high in France and Belgium, especially in Brussels, the capital, two places currently on high terrorist alert. As a soccer game got underway Monday night in a Brussels stadium between the Belgian and Swedish national teams, an attacker gunned down and killed two Swedish fans on the city's streets. The Euro 2024 qualifier soccer match was stopped and thousands of fans were confined to the stadium for several hours while police secured the streets. After an all-night manhunt, the alleged attacker was found and killed in a scuffle with police. The Tunisian national living illegally in Belgium had professed allegiance to ISIS in a video online. A day before the Brussels attack, thousands of people gathered in shock and solidarity in the main plaza of the northern French city of Arras. They were mourning a high school literature teacher whose throat had been slit by a Chechen-born Islamist radical and former student. That attack came almost three years to the day of the beheading of another French teacher by another Chechen-born extremist. Teachers union leader Catherine Picouche spoke at Sunday's gathering. It is unbearable to have to relive this same horror. Our public secular schools are again a target and our teachers attacked. The 20-year-old suspect, who is now in custody, also made a video professing allegiance to ISIS. The Council of French Muslims, which represents France's Islamic community, firmly condemned the attack on the teacher and extended condolences to his family. Notre Europe est bousculée. Our Europe is being shaken, said President Emmanuel Macron, who called for solidarity amidst what he said is a possible return of Islamist terrorism to Europe. 7,000 French soldiers have been deployed in France, the nation with Europe's largest Muslim and Jewish populations. Officials are so jittery the Louvre Museum has been evacuated twice since Saturday due to bomb threats. Officials attribute a surge in anti-Semitic threats in France to the Israel-Hamas war. In Israel, 21 French citizens were among those killed in the Hamas attacks. The mother of one of the 11 French-Israeli hostages, Karen Sharf Shem, spoke on Israeli television. I'm begging the world to bring my baby back home. She only went to a party, to a festival party, to have some fun. And now she's in Gaza, and she's not the only one. Many people in France draw a comparison between the Hamas killings at the rave party in Israel's desert and the 2015 terrorist attack on Paris's Bataclan nightclub, where 90 mostly young people were murdered. 179 élèves ont fait un autre choix. Tuesday in the French Parliament, Education Minister Gabriel Attal was angry. He said 179 students across the nation had purposely disrupted the minute of silence for France's slain teacher. That cannot be tolerated, said Attal, who said the worst offenders would be charged with apology for terrorism. As the violence in the Middle East continues, France and other European countries remain on edge. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris.
This is NPR News. This is Rupa Shinoy in Boston. President Biden is in Israel to reaffirm U.S. support for the country's security as it prepares to launch an attack on Hamas. Stay with 90.9 WBUR today and follow the president and the latest developments. President Biden is expected to speak at any moment and we'll bring that to you live. Partly sunny in mid-60s today with a slight chance of late afternoon showers. Upper 40s tonight and mostly cloudy. Tomorrow back to mostly sunny skies and mid-60s. Right now it's 51 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And Renewal by Anderson a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. Waltham-based Thermo Fisher Scientific says it plans to buy a Swedish company for more than $3 billion. Thermo Fisher says the acquisition of Olink will help it accelerate scientific breakthroughs. The deal is expected to close in the middle of next year. Needham-based TripAdvisor is teaming up with other travel and online shopping platforms to combat fake reviews. The company says it's joining the likes of Amazon, Expedia, and Booking.com to launch a so-called coalition for trusted reviews. The group will share methods on how to detect and prevent fake reviews. T.D. Garden is under new leadership. Glenn Thornborough was named the Garden's new president yesterday. Thornborough previously served as the chief revenue officer for the Boston Bruins. He'll continue his work with the team in a dual role as its chief operating officer. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including hunger relief organizations, with their accounting needs, more at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Donald Trump was back in court in New York Tuesday. This was in the civil case that alleges a widespread business conspiracy. The former president watched for hours as witnesses gave evidence of the ways his company lied about the value of its properties. Joining us to talk about the trial is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Good morning. Good morning. So what was Trump doing in court yesterday? His former fixer, Michael Cohen, had been scheduled to testify, but delayed due to health reasons. But Trump came anyway to watch a Trump Organization bookkeeper and an appraiser talk about the inner workings of his business. Both witnesses in different ways cast doubt on the veracity of Trump Organization's books. Trump mostly had his say in the hallway outside the courtroom where he said he was being railroaded. But inside, he had to sit and look at spreadsheets along with the rest of us. The numbers are so tiny on the screens in the court that some reporters have taken to bringing binoculars to see them. Huh, okay, makes sense. What, what have we learned so far in this case? So we've heard some, from some really key employees and contractors like Trump's CFO, Alan Weisselberg, Trump's outside accountant, 
and a banker at Deutsche Bank. And there's been a slow and kind of painstaking evidence trail emerging showing that a small group of Trump organization insiders, while they seemed to be consulting with reputable outside companies, kept a close hold on what the values of the properties should be, even discussing adding a, quote, presidential premium for some properties. The defendants all deny wrongdoing. We're in the, the third week of the trial. Did we learn something yesterday? Yeah, the most dramatic part of testimony yesterday came from a witness named Douglas Larson. He's been an appraiser for 30 years and has valued some big Trump properties like Trump Tower, Nike Town, and 40 Wall Street, which is a big office building. The AG's office laid out documents showing that the Trump organization claimed it had calculated the value of these big properties based on the appraiser's numbers. But over and over again, for each property, the appraiser said, nope, that's not accurate. That's not true. The numbers were not from him and they were incorrect. They were too high. Hmm. So has the, has the Trump organization said how they arrived at their values? So one example, according to the attorney general, from 40 Wall Street, Larson calculated it was worth $540 million. But the AG's office displayed a document showing the Trump Organization said it was worth $200 million more, $735 million. The AG's office showed in that case, a Trump employee added $120 million in value for a lease from a high-end food store. But the witness said he had already factored that in. The AG called this double counting. What's the defense to all of this? It's kind of like Trump's defense in other areas, which is that he has the right to his own facts. He and his lawyers say the value of a property is worth what people will pay and that when you're president, people will pay more. Trump's lawyers tried to show appraisals can vary, that they're an art as well as a science, but the appraiser held his ground. He'll finish up today. And, and, and what about Michael Cohen? You, you mentioned that health concerns kept him from testifying as briefly as you can. What is he expected to say? He is really at the heart of the case. It was his testimony before Congress about the double valuation that really launched this investigation. He's shown he has detailed knowledge and also he's a convicted felon. So there should be some drama there. That is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Andrea, thanks so much for sharing this reporting with us. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, some colleges are recommending that students include fentanyl test strips in their fall packing list. We'll tell you why. It's 7.49. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. President Biden is in Israel today where he's promising to continue U.S. support of the country following Hamas's deadly attacks. Hundreds of people are dead in an explosion at a hospital in Gaza with both sides blaming each other for the airstrike.
A second vote for Speaker of the House is expected today after Republican Ohio Representative Jim Jordan failed to earn enough support on yesterday's ballot. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org. And Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline. Embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at GoddardHouse.org. Mid-60s and partly sunny today. There's a slight chance we'll see some showers late this afternoon. Mostly cloudy tonight in the upper 40s. Then tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 66. Right now it's 51 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. After the Taliban returned to power in Afghanistan two years ago, the militant regime restricted music for being morally corrupt. As Kabul was falling, pianist and composer Arsen Fahim found refuge in Cambridge at the Longy School of Music. I know some musicians who are still in Afghanistan, and they've had to actually destroy their own instruments in fear of being caught with it. Fahim has been using his instrument to raise awareness about the Taliban's brutality. He's one of 10 local artists we're profiling this week. Here's WBUR's Andrea Shea. At Longy School of Music, 23-year-old Arsen Fahim practices in a building filled with pianos. But as a kid in Pakistan, where he was born an Afghan refugee, Fahim had never even seen one. My only like way of even knowing about it was through movies, mostly. One of them was The Pianist. Ich bin, ich war Pianist. Roman Polanski's 2002 film tells the true story of a Jewish musician whose art helped him survive in Nazi-occupied Warsaw during World War II. I found it hard to believe, to be honest. How could music save someone's life? Can it really be that powerful? In Fahim's homeland, Afghanistan, making music could mean death. The Taliban banned it for being immoral after taking power the first time in the mid-1990s. They would destroy cassettes or instruments. They would, for musicians, either kill them or at least cut off their hands just for playing an instrument. But after the United States ousted the Taliban in 2001, music flourished. When Fahim's family moved back to Afghanistan in 2012, he finally got to play a real piano. He started taking lessons, practiced eight hours a day, and learned the Chopin nocturne he first heard in The Pianist. As a teen, Fahim got into the country's only National Institute of Music, which was founded in 2010. But even with the Taliban out of power, he says extremists continued to target artists. I think just being a musician in Afghanistan means you're not just a musician, you're also an activist. You're doing something that is putting your life in danger. Fahim composed one of his first pieces for an innocent woman killed in Kabul named Farhanda. 
she was falsely accused of burning the Quran and an angry crowd started beating her. They eventually set her on fire. For a long time, I was just in shock. How can humans be so cruel? Fahim went on to apply to Longy in Cambridge and received a full scholarship. As U.S. forces prepared to pull out of Afghanistan in 2021, Fahim was getting ready to fly to the American Music School, where Karen Zorn is president. We were worried he wouldn't get out. But Fahim made it just two weeks before Afghanistan fell again to the Taliban. Since he arrived, Zorn says Fahim has shared his musical mission at Longy. He's had life experiences, right, that I think it's fair to say have matured him beyond his years. And that shows up in who he is as a person and who he is in our community. I want my music to be a way for me to fight for social justice. And actually, fight is a good word because that's how I feel about my instrument. I feel like I'm on the front line of a war against barbarity. Fahim poured the heartbreak he felt about his homeland into a composition called Broken Mountains. People here in the U.S., which is so directly involved with everything that happened in Afghanistan, just didn't seem to care as my country's falling apart Broken Mountains began as a piano piece, but Fahim expanded it when other musicians wanted to get involved. An orchestral ensemble performed the work at a fundraiser he and fellow students organized called The Concert in Solidarity with Afghan Musicians. In 2022 and 2023, players from around the world, including Afghan exiles, brought Fahim's Broken Mountains to life. The most notable thing that happens is this section where there's just one soprano singing. One of the most important things that the Taliban are taking away is women's rights. I have a younger sister who's no longer allowed to go to school. I felt like screaming, and I'm sure that Afghan woman felt like screaming. Fahim worries about his family, friends, and all of the musicians back in Afghanistan. But even with recent reports of the Taliban burning instruments and bonfires, Fahim holds on to hope. I have 100% faith there will be a day where people like me, Afghans, will be able to return and have more music than ever before. Until then, Fahim will continue working to amplify their silenced voices, and he hopes to host the third Concert in Solidarity with Afghan Musicians in 2024. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea.
You can hear more of Arsen Fahim's music at WBUR.org. Later today, we'll bring you the story of a former court interpreter who uses art to explore translation and social justice issues. Listen to that on All Things Considered, beginning at 4 p.m. here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. President Biden is in Israel this morning. He's expected to speak about the situation there at any time. We'll bring that to you live on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app when that happens. Some sun and clouds today under partly sunny skies that'll go cloudy around mid-afternoon, and there's a slight chance we'll see, may see some rain. It's 51 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. WBUR supporters include the ICA. Innovative new art by Boston-area artists in the 2023 Foster Prize Exhibition, on view now, icaboston.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden has arrived in Israel and declared his sadness and outrage by the explosion at a Gaza hospital that killed hundreds of people. It's Wednesday, October 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Palestinian ambassador to the UN says Biden should push for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. He is capable of telling Israel enough is enough. Stop this carnage against the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip. Also, we get reaction from Republican Representative Jim Jordan's constituents in Ohio to his run for House Speaker. Plus, as Massachusetts lawmakers prepare to vote on a sweeping new gun control bill, they're hearing loud opposition from some police chiefs and gun owners. You were sworn in to uphold the Constitution of the United States, correct? Yes, that was yes. Okay, so you're directly defying the Second Amendment? Partly sunny in 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is in Israel, where he's meeting first responders deployed after Hamas militants stormed into the country. He's also meeting family members of victims. Biden got to Tel Aviv a few hours ago. He's met Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli War Cabinet, where he again expressed his support for Israel. We will continue to have Israel's back as you work to defend your people. We'll continue to work with you and partners across the region to prevent more tragedy to innocent civilians. Biden's visit to Israel comes as the region convulses following yesterday's explosion at a hospital in Gaza. Hundreds of people were killed. NPR's Jackie Northam reports from Jerusalem there's concern the war between Israel and the militant group Hamas could spread into a wider conflict. President Biden arrived in Israel as images of rescue workers sifting through the rubble at the hospital in Gaza flooded onto social media. Footage of medical workers trying to save the wounded, dozens of bodies wrapped in blankets and white sheets nearby. The reaction to the blast was immediate. Street protests in the region, Arab leaders canceling a summit with Biden, and increasing concern a broader war could erupt. Palestinians blame the explosion on an Israeli airstrike, one of many into Gaza throughout the day. Israel blamed the armed Palestinian faction Islamic Jihad. 
President Biden, in talks with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, appeared to back that claim, which likely won't help ease tension in the region. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Jerusalem. The White House says although Biden won't meet face-to-face with Arab leaders during his visit, he will talk to two of them by phone. Biden is to hold a call with the leader of the Palestinian Authority and Egypt's president on his flight home. House Republicans will try again to find a path forward after their latest nominee for speaker lost his bid for the gavel in a first round of votes. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan is facing a long list of detractors with little margin for error. Jordan and his allies had hoped to quickly try a second time, but postponed after it became clear many of his detractors are dug in. He lost by 20 votes in the first round, and some Republicans predict that could grow longer in a second ballot. The Republican speaker nominee needs almost all members in the conference to vote yes to become speaker. However, many of Jordan's detractors are still angry at the process and tactics deployed by Jordan and his allies to try to flip votes in his favor. It's led to growing talk of Republicans expanding acting Speaker Patrick McHenry's powers for a temporary period. Claudia Grisales, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Healy is unveiling a $4 billion plan this morning to create and upgrade affordable housing. WBUR's Todd Wallach reports that much of the money would be for the state's public housing. The bond bill includes $1.6 billion to renovate aging state-funded public housing. That's more than double the money in a similar bond measure five years ago, notes Secretary of Housing Ed Augustus. That is a threefold increase on what previously had been spent on public housing capital needs. That is, without a doubt, the biggest investment made in public housing capital needs since uh, it was built. The proposal comes a month after WBUR found nearly 2,300 state-subsidized units are empty, including many that need repairs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are once again calling for the replacement of the Cape Cod bridges. A new report based on input from leaders on the Cape laid out issues caused by the bridges. Local officials say closures on the Bourne and Sagamore bridges negatively impact the local economy. They also say frequent traffic backups affect how quickly officials can respond to emergencies. The bridges are owned by the federal government. They're nearly 90 years old. Massachusetts police officers say they need better access to benefits after being injured on the job. They're pushing for a bill that would make it easier for officers who are critically injured while working to collect 100 percent of their salary as a pension. Right now, officers are only eligible to receive 72 percent of their salary. Officials tell the Boston Globe similar proposals have been considered in the past. The Salvation Army in Massachusetts is concerned that changing shopping habits will impact its holiday fundraising. Major Walter Rivers is the commanding officer with the group in Haverhill. He says it's been difficult for those bell ringers outside of stores. What we've seen is a real decrease in folks going in and out of local stores carrying cash. Uh, More people are shopping online. During COVID, you know, people were 
staying home, so it was difficult for us to get volunteers to ring bells at the stores. The nonprofit is looking to raise $2.5 million statewide for social services assistance and food pantries. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brigham and Women's Hospital. For expert research-based obstetric and gynecologic care, turn to Brigham and Women's, specialists in women's health with the latest innovative treatments for complex conditions. U.S. News ranks Brigham and Women's number one for obstetric and gynecologic care in the country. BrighamandWomens.org. The Celtics beat the New York Knicks in an exhibition game last night. The final at the Garden was 123-110. to The Seas will visit the Charlotte Hornets tomorrow. Partly sunny today with a chance for showers this afternoon. It'll be in the 60s. Partly cloudy overnight and down to the 40s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the upper 60s. Right now it's 51 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Paramount Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, and directed by Martin Scorsese. Only in theaters October 20th, rated R. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Falden. The West Bank, like much of the Arab world, has erupted in protest after an explosion at a hospital killed at least 500 people in the Gaza Strip. The cause is still unconfirmed, but even before this, there were signs that tensions in the West Bank could easily boil over. Israel's punishing airstrikes on Gaza, the total siege of basic goods, hospitals running out of fuel, people running out of food, has many Palestinians outside Gaza, in the West Bank and inside Israel, wondering how much harder their lives might get. And they have reason to worry. In the days following the Hamas assault in southern Israel, the worst attack on civilians in Israel's history, at least 61 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Many appear to be reprisal killings. The Israeli human rights group B'Tselem has been documenting some and sharing videos online. A warning, you're about to hear the sound of gunfire. In one video, a settler accompanied by an Israeli soldier shoots a man at point-blank range. In another, a group of Palestinian men are being shot at. These acts of apparent revenge are what set us on the road from Jerusalem to the village of Qusra in the northern West Bank. What happened there, just days after the Hamas attack, tells the story of just how combustible tensions are right now between Israelis and Palestinians beyond Gaza. This is a road called Road 16. That's NPR producer Noha Muslih. It starts all the way in the south and goes all the way to the highest tip in the in the West Bank. The route is scenic. Palestinian villages dot the horizon alongside Israeli settlements that are rapidly expanding. The Oslo Accords in the 1990s raised expectations that this land would someday be part of an independent state for Palestinians with Jerusalem. But in the years since, Israeli settlements have grown and the Israeli military maintains its control on the West Bank. In Qusra, the residents are Palestinian, but the village falls under Israeli authority and is surrounded by expanding settlements that the UN Security Council has said violate international law. So we've just arrived in Qusra and this is an area where um, a few people have been killed in violence in the West Bank. And as we were driving up, you can kind of see the way... This this land is divided. Settlements coming in, Palestinians being moved out, and Qusra is surrounded by settlements. So we're, we're here right now and we're about to meet the mayor. We head inside to meet Hani Auda Abu Ala in his office. 
Can I ask, just in the last few days, what's been happening in Qasra? In the first stage of the suffering of this village this last week, three Palestinians were killed when they tried to defend children in a house that was attacked by the settlers. In the second stage of what happened here this week, uh, the soldiers came into our village and killed another person from Qusra, making the number of martyrs in Yusra four martyrs in one day. A few days later, when they carried the dead in a funeral procession coordinated with Israeli authorities, the mayor says they lost two more people when settlers shot a father and son. We are not against Jews. Let us establish this. We are against settlers and the ones who call themselves soldiers, whom to us are not soldiers who defend us as citizens. He says this is the worst settler violence they've seen. And he says the attackers came from a settlement nearby called Esh Kodesh, holy fire in Hebrew. But these attacks, he says, are not isolated incidents. The walls of his office are covered in pictures of settler violence he says Kusra has endured. The attacks on Kusra are ongoing and are on a daily basis. As you can see in all these pictures, we have an attack on a mosque. We have attack on agricultural sites. Wherever you look here, it's attacks by Israeli soldiers and settlers. The worst of which was the one we had a couple of days ago. The images show destroyed olive groves, a damaged mosque, a man killed, and protests. We leave his office and head to a gathering hall for the village. Inside, women have come together to mourn their dead. They cry, they hold each other, and they pray. And when pictures of the dead are passed around the hall, the wails grow louder. Hassan Muhannad Abu Sarur was 21 when he was killed last Tuesday. His mother sits between her aunt and her cousin. Their arms are draped around her shoulders protectively. It's too hard to talk about it. He is her oldest son. Abu Sarur's mother stays silent, and Hanan Auda, her cousin, speaks on her behalf. He heeded the call to help when the attack began. He was shot. They have killed our young people. They want to evacuate us from our own lands. They say, this, these lands are ours, not yours. When we leave the hall, the mayor, Hani Auda Abu Ala, is waiting. He gets in the car with us and takes us to the limits of his village. He wants to show us parts of the land the residents here no longer use because it's vulnerable to settler violence and harassment. We're going to go down because he's going to show us now the bigger picture. We stop at a hilltop. This of land was supposed to be the site of a building. After these incidents, he's gone. His land is going to stay, but he's gone. And his project is gone with it. He points at a higher peak across the way to show me the settlements that overlook this edge of the village. Ash Kodesh is right there on the left-hand side. In the center is a military camp, 
and he says the settlers along with the soldiers gather there and come down to attack us together. Then there's Rahel right there on the far right and Rahel is expanding non-stop. So now for the safety of the farmers in this village, they no longer come here. We leave and end up at the house that was attacked last Tuesday, the place where many of the villagers were killed. The windows on the front of the home are shattered, the wood nearby burned, a car destroyed. Abu Alat blames Hamas and Israel's far-right government for the war and these killings in his village. Settlers who want to attack Palestinians, he says, are more emboldened than ever. They had posted on social media that we will take revenge. These people are violent all the time against the people of Qusra and the neighboring villages, but the war empowered them as well. When you say the settlers are emboldened, what does that mean for the future of Qusra? I see the future as a bleak future. I see it as a black future. He wants it to stop. When I try to understand what happened in the war, I tell you that these people in Gaza have been under siege for so long and have been killed in such a way. This is why the war took place. And if our situation continues here with settler attacks, the same thing will happen. People will start feeling the same way as Gaza. The more aggressiveness on the one side, the more is the aggressiveness from the other side. I don't agree with this, he says, but I address the Israeli people and say enough, enough, enough killing on both sides. The Israeli army said it was checking when NPR asked if the army killed one of these villagers, but didn't get back to us in time for this broadcast. We also asked the police if anyone involved in these killings of six Palestinians was arrested. No arrests, but they say it's under investigation. And a lawyer who represents Israeli settlers accused of violence told NPR there have been many Palestinian shooting attacks since the war began and no arrests. It underscores what the mayor and the villagers told me, that armed settlers harass and in this case case, kill them with impunity. So while we were in Kusra, our colleague, Ari Shapiro from All Things Considered, went to the settlement where Kusra residents said the attackers came from, and he joins me now to talk about that. Hi, Ari. Hey, Leila. You know, Ari, in Kusra, we found a community that was afraid. They feel the Israeli military is there to protect the settlers and not them, and they're particularly worried about attacks from a settlement, Ash Kodesh, when you met someone from there, right? Yeah, Nati Rome is his name. He got out of his truck carrying an M16 and a Glock. Nati Rome said he needs his weapon to defend himself. And after we met, I followed up to ask him about some of the specific claims in your reporting. He said, quote, completely fake. All the dead people, the dead terrorists are from the bullets of the IDF after they started a riot and after they shoot almost every day on Jews in the village. He said the men killed at the funeral were, quote, condemned terrorists that were involved in the lynching of children. Just to be clear, there's no evidence of anyone lynching children or being an accused terrorist among the dead. It's not something we heard from anyone, not the Israeli military either. And videos of the incident show what looked like unarmed villagers in Kusra getting shot at. So a very different story. Yes, and while there may never be closure on this specific incident, we can definitively say that settlement violence against Palestinians in the West Bank has increased dramatically since the massacre of October 7th. I spoke with an expert who's been studying this for decades. His name is Dror Etkes, and here's what he told me. 
not only the numbers, also the severity of these attacks, you know. There's a difference between verb and violent than to get into a community and to shoot in the air. Yeah, and that's the kind of stuff we were hearing from the mayor. He's really worried that these attacks that took six people from his village are just going to increase. And he described the future as bleak. What did you hear from people? What Nati Romavesh Kodesh said really stuck with me. When I asked him to paint a picture of the future he wants to see, he said, quote, you can't make peace with people who want to kill you. The future is we'll be able to eliminate the snake. That's quite ominous. You can hear more of Ari's reporting from the settlements tonight on All Things Considered. Thanks, Ari. You're welcome, Layla. This is NPR News. You're starting your Wednesday with WBUR. President Biden is in Israel to reaffirm U.S. support for the country's security as it prepares to launch an attack on Hamas. Stay with 90.9 WBUR today and follow the president and the latest developments. President Biden is expected to speak at some point this morning and will bring that to you live. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu slash together. AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. And Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. I'm Scott Tong. President Biden travels to Tel Aviv and Jordan to show support for Israel and to meet with both Israeli and Arab leaders in the region. Meanwhile, Russian President Putin is in Beijing, meeting with Chinese leader Xi as the war in Ukraine goes on. We will have the latest next time in Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Today on Radio Boston, we'll have a conversation with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. We'll talk with her about the tea, the influx of migrants, and much more. Listen this morning at 11 on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. There's a slight chance of showers late this afternoon. Otherwise, a mix of sun and clouds today with a high near 64. Tonight, more clouds move in and it falls to a low around 48. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 66. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Doubleday, publisher of The Exchange by John Grisham. The hero of The Firm returns in a new sequel. The Exchange After The Firm is available now in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to making it easy for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Congressman Jim Jordan is hoping to become House Speaker when voting resumes today. Jordan's reputation as a firebrand is an asset to his supporters, but for his detractors, it is a liability. NPR's Sarah McCammon tells us more from Jordan's district in central Ohio. 
When you ask about her congressman, Jim Jordan, Linda Setlig doesn't hold back. Don't like him at all. He doesn't do anything for us at all. He just yells and screams and causes trouble. Setlig was enjoying breakfast at Lulu's Diner in Lima, Ohio on Tuesday. She says Jordan should focus on improving health care and the economy at home. As a Democrat, Setlig is in the minority here. Jordan won re-election in 2022 with nearly 70 percent of the vote. Blake Kenner of nearby Bell Fountain can understand why Jordan enjoys that level of support. I like him as a person. I, I know him. I've met him. Kenner is a retired cop, now a school resource officer. When it comes to Jordan, there's one thing he can't get past, though. I think it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth on um, the January 6th incident. Kenner was dining at QP, a popular burger joint in Lima, earlier this week. He says he's concerned about Jordan's involvement in the rally led by former President Donald Trump on January 6th. That incident turned my stomach. I saw police officers trying to do their jobs and being fought by their own citizens. For anyone to support it, it's sickening. Back at the diner, Russell Blue, who lives in a rural area in Jordan's district, has no issue with his reputation as a right-wing rabble-rouser. Oh, I think he's a bulldog. He's, he's got some good ideas. The bigger concern for Blue is the Republican Party's inability to come together. Why can't you guys agree at least once or twice? We don't have time for this. As long as Republicans can't choose a speaker, Congress can't function, even as they face the looming prospect of a government shutdown in less than a month. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Lima, Ohio. During the first weeks of the fall semester, college campuses across the country are busy tabling. That's when tables are set up and students walk up to them to sign up for a club or join a political group. And now, at many colleges, they can also learn how to avoid a fentanyl overdose. Here's NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny. It's crowded in Farrell Hall, the student center at the Dell High campus of the State University of New York. So. Fentanyl, what do you know about fentanyl? Sound Rebecca like Harrington, who works in student affairs on campus, is standing behind a table with colorful cups, a water jug, and candies in Ziplocs. We're going to pretend that this pressed powdered candy is a drug that you've gotten illicitly. She's showing students how to use a fentanyl test strip. This is what a real test strip looks like. But it's similar to a pregnancy test or a chlorine test for a pool. In this particular brand, two stripes is no fentanyl and one stripe is fentanyl. Fentanyl was involved in the vast majority of all teen overdose deaths in 2021, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And the problem has been following teens onto college campuses. Students may think they're taking pills like oxycodone, Xanax, Vicodin. Instead, those pills often have fentanyl in them, resulting in overdoses on campuses across the country, from Ohio to Colorado to Oregon. Yeah, I just need a little bit off the edge. There we go, perfect. Rebecca Harrington at SUNY Delhi points to the candy she's brought. It's meant to be a stand-in for a pill. It's time to crush it up. Just like hit it with a rock. Yeah, hit it with a rock. I got a bottle. And this she says here. you can use whatever you find at a house party, in a dorm. Just put it in. Put it right in the water there. So give it a little bit of a swirl. Mix it up a little bit. The more of the drug that you test, 
the better, she says. Though many students will still want some left over if it's clean. So we're gonna dip the testing end in there. Harrington says practice can come with a big payoff. If you know how to use it and be like, wait a minute, friends, like before we do this thing, let's do a test strip. I have one. I know how to use it. I think you're more likely to intervene because you've got that little bit of knowledge, that little bit of confidence. It's a far cry from the don't do drugs messaging a lot of people are familiar with. But research has found that message alone doesn't work. Plus, every student who left that table in Farrell Hall took a packet of strips. But here's some oh, thank you. You're welcome very much. And we'll have, we have these on campus. They've got them and that doesn't surprise Alexis Rice, a recent graduate of SUNY Oneonta. She interned for the health center on campus giving out test strips. So this is something you can just like slip in your pocket, which is great. She says a lot of her classmates came out of COVID lockdown with more social anxiety and mental health issues. Self-medicating via social media or friends of friends is popular, but it can be dangerous, especially given the rise of counterfeit pills. Test strips, she says, can be the difference between life and death. It takes like only like a couple of minutes at the most. It's really not that hard to do. You need water, you just need a little bit of powder. On campus at Ohio State University, students can pick up free test strips at the health center. The local health department in Columbus also recommended college students add them to their packing lists. It's been received a lot better than I even expected. That's Carolyn Jinder, a fourth-year biology student at OSU. She helps do drug prevention outreach on campus, and part of that is giving out free test strips. Like, everyone that I've ever talked to has known about fentanyl test strips. But it wasn't always that way. In fact, a handful of states still classify the testing strips as drug paraphernalia, policies left over from decades-old tough-on-crime drug laws. But given the rise of overdoses, states are changing those laws. Ohio decriminalized test strips earlier this year. We have students from all over the country, so it's important to let them know that, yes, in Ohio, you can have these, but you need to know about your own state's legislation. Back at SUNY Delhi, Rebecca Harrington says test strips and overdose medications like Narcan are part of a larger strategy on campus to make college students more safe and to reduce harm when they do use. Did one of the test strips I hand out that day stop an overdose? That would be awesome. I'll never know. But if I gave one person the confidence to think a little bit more deeply about it, that it's enough to help her feel satisfied and to propel her to keep her mini science experiments going. Alyssa Nadwarney, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Some police chiefs and gun owners are opposing a sweeping new gun control bill that's up for a vote in the Massachusetts State House today. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade six to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit TCHS.org and the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, committed to strengthening democracy. Join a discussion on Supreme Court reform, October 25th, emkinstitute.org.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is in Tel Aviv today, where he's been holding high-level talks with officials in the Israeli government. NPR's Michelle Kellerman says Biden arrived in Israel a day after an explosion at a hospital in the Gaza Strip left hundreds of people dead. President Biden said he's deeply saddened by the death toll, but he said that judging from what he's seen, and these were his words, it was done by the other team, not you. He said that while he was sitting alongside Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Israeli officials say that this was a rocket launched by Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The Palestinians say it was an Israeli airstrike, and they're demanding an end to the Israeli bombardment. The hospital blast prompted Arab leaders to call off their planned summit with Biden in Amman, Jordan, following his talks in Tel Aviv. Biden is planning to speak to them by phone after wrapping up his Middle East trip. NPR's Jane Araf says security forces in Jordan kept hundreds of protesters wearing Palestinian flags away from Israel's embassy in Amman today. Tear gas was hanging in the air and ambulances were coming and going. Riot police had kept the protesters away from the embassy, which is heavily fortified, but not before some of them set fire to some tires nearby. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. On Beacon Hill, the House will vote on a comprehensive gun reform bill today. The bill would strengthen the state's assault weapons ban. It would also expand the state's red flag law. If approved, gun owners would be restricted from carrying in some public places. The Senate may not take up the measure until next year. We'll get a closer look at the issue coming up in 15 minutes here on Morning Edition. A Brookline resident is organizing a gathering today for people who want to send support to people affected by the war in Israel and Gaza. The event will include space to decorate cards that will be mailed to hospitals and organizations in the war-torn region. People can also donate clothes, medical supplies, or funds. Organizer Jen Wofford says people of all ages, faiths, and beliefs are welcome. You can walk in and choose, I want to support Israeli groups, that is welcome. You can walk in and say, I only want to support Palestinian groups, that's welcome. That we can come together because all human life is sacred and we can all share in that belief and direct our donations where we want them to go. The event runs from 4 to 6 today at the Brookline Public Library. Worcester's city council will no longer consider regulations for so-called crisis pregnancy centers. Those centers provide some resources for pregnant people, but they do not provide abortions and often dissuade people from getting them. City administrators requested regulations for how the clinics could advertise their services. The Telegram and Gazette reports councillors voted down the consideration because of concerns over the constitutionality of such regulations. Cambridge passed a similar ordinance earlier this year. Last year, Somerville banned the facilities altogether. Restoration on the original wooden tomb doors in the crypt of Old North Church in Boston is now complete. The doors are being installed today as the culmination of a 10-month restoration and preservation project. Catherine Matthews is director of education at the church. She says the project helps preserve an important part of history. Having the physical objects and the physical spaces that allow us to connect with the past is critical because it lets us as human beings kind of enter the space literally and emotionally of the people who came before us and to understand their priorities. 
Matthews says the project was completed just in time for the church's 300th anniversary. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. The Celtics beat the New York Knicks 123-110 to last night in an exhibition game at the Garden. The Seas will visit the Charlotte Hornets tomorrow night. A high in the mid-60s today under partly sunny skies. There's a slight chance of showers late this afternoon. Tonight it grows mostly cloudy and we'll have lows in the upper 40s. Mostly sunny tomorrow with a high back in the mid-60s. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. President Biden has landed in Israel. He's meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu this morning. This comes amid rising tensions throughout the region. Protesters took to the streets across the Arab world to denounce an explosion at a hospital in Gaza yesterday. Several hundred people were killed, and both Israel and Hamas have blamed others for the attack. This morning, though, President Biden appeared to accept Israel's telling of the story. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the... Uh explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not not you. But there's a lot of people out there not sure. So we got a lot, we've got to overcome a lot of things. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is in Amman, Jordan. She joins us now. Uh, Michelle, what is uh, President Biden trying to achieve here? Well, there's a lot of pressure on him to use his influence with Israel to get aid into Gaza and to open up some sort of safe passage for civilians. So that's one goal. He's also trying to get a better sense of Israel's endgame in Gaza, and he's trying to contain this conflict in a very combustible region. The U.S. is very worried about violence spreading. Um, The Biden administration has been pressing countries throughout the region to use their influence with groups like Hezbollah and Lebanon and other militants to keep them out of this fight. But that gets really harder to do as the Palestinian death toll climbs and protests spread. So what's the United States official position about the explosion? He said that it was the other team, as he put it. Israeli officials have said that the Palestinian Islamic Jihad launched the rocket from inside Gaza and that the rocket failed and caused that explosion at the hospital. The Palestinians say it was an Israeli airstrike and they're demanding an end to the Israeli bombardment. We're hearing today from the UN Secretary General, who has not pointed fingers, but he is calling for a humanitarian pause to allow aid to get in. And right now, um, a the US has not pushed for a ceasefire. Um, U.S. officials say Israel has the right to go after Hamas after that unprecedented attack a week and a half ago. Netanyahu called the attack pure evil and said the world should unite behind Israel to defeat Hamas. Yeah, the whole situation is terrible. Um, What are the U.S. and the West trying to do? 
So Secretary Blinken has been traveling throughout the region in the run-up to Biden's trip, and he's been trying to negotiate a deal with the Israelis to allow aid into Gaza and to set up safe areas for civilians. There is a lot of pressure now to make that a reality. But remember, Gaza is a tiny territory with two million Palestinians, and there's really nowhere safe to go. Most people don't have access to water or electricity, and they're desperate for help. Israel's been blocking aid, fearing that it could be stolen by Hamas or benefit Hamas, which is, by the way, still holding nearly 200 Israelis hostage, including some Americans. And that, A, is adding just another layer of complexity to this. Yeah, Michelle, you're in in Jordan because you've been traveling with Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken around the region. What are other Arab nations saying about all this? So Egypt's president told Secretary Blinken a few days ago that he thinks this is now becoming collective punishment against the Palestinian people. Uh, He was due to come here to Jordan to meet with President Biden, along with Jordan's King Abdullah and the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. That summit and that trip has been called off and things are getting really tense. That's NPR's Michelle Kellerman in Amman, Jordan. Michelle, thanks. Thank you. The bombing of a hospital in Gaza has sparked fury across the Arab world. In Amman, Jordan, security forces tear gas protesters trying to reach the Israeli embassy. And that is where we have NPR's Jane Araf. Jane, good morning to you. Good morning. You were at the protest. Can you tell us what you saw? Sure. When I got there, I mean, people were leaving because security forces were pushing them out. But there were still about a thousand people, most of them young men, wearing Palestinian flags. The tear gas was hanging in the air and ambulances were coming and going. Uh, the riot police had kept the protesters away from the embassy, which is as you would imagine, heavily fortified, but not before some of them set fire to some tires nearby. Now, protests here aren't unusual. The majority of Jordanians are originally Palestinian. They're forced from their homes. Their families were forced from their homes in the West Bank during the wars with Israel. And among East Bank Jordanians, there's a strong affinity for the Palestinian cause. But this protest felt different. I spoke to one of the protesters, Omar, a 22-year-old engineering student, who told me why he had come. It doesn't mean anything. He just came here to, to witness the genocide in Palestine. There he's talking about what he thought Biden would accomplish if he came here. But he also said that he was spurred to come because he saw the bombing of the hospital in Gaza on TV, which is a big reason a lot of them came. Another young man told me he and his friends came because the world had forgotten about Palestinians. And that's a key part of the anger here. There are millions of Palestinian refugees who have languished for decades. And there's a feeling that it can't go on like this. How is the government of Jordan responding? Well, they're deeply worried, as you saw with the cancellation of the summit with President Biden. And here's what they're worried about mostly. It's that Having taken in waves of refugees from Palestine and other places, they fear that more Palestinian refugees could be pushed into Jordan because there has been an Israeli thought that perhaps Jordan is the alternate Palestine, which of course Jordan rejects and Palestinians reject. Egypt has much the same fears, by the way. It fears that Palestinians from Gaza would be pushed into Egypt. And that's basically the bottom line. So what you have are people who are trapped with nowhere to go and countries that want to help them but can't take any more of them. They also don't want to see Palestinians giving up their land. That would make even harder for them to come back. And I think we also need to say that 
both Egypt and Jordan, like a lot of countries in the region, they're having tough times to begin with. Severe economic hardship, widespread discontent. And as briefly as you can, Jane, what about elsewhere in the Arab world? Well, in Ramallah, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority president, returned to be greeted by hundreds of protesters. And it's a sign that although the the catalyst for the protests last night were what's happening in Gaza and the hospital bombing, there's also a vein of all sorts of other resentments. This one, lack of leadership. And people are using the opportunity to come out and show their anger. That is NPR's Jane Araf. Jane, thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. A heads up for commuter rail riders. The MBTA says there are severe delays on the Middleborough, Kingston and Greenbush lines right now because of a signal problem near Quincy Center. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the newest company joining the S&P 500, Lululemon. Its stock has surged in recent days ahead of the move. Partly sunny in mid-60s today with a slight chance of late afternoon showers. Upper 40s tonight and mostly cloudy. Tomorrow, back to mostly sunny skies and mid-60s. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. And Loomis Sales. Proud to support Boston Medical Center, and they're supporting our families through addiction and recovery program. Committed to helping families enhance their children's development and providing support for recovery with access to specialty care and social services. Learn more at bmc.org. Massachusetts will be among 13 states participating in a free tax filing pilot by the IRS next year. The direct file program is meant to serve as an alternative to private tax preparation companies like H&R Block and TurboTax. The IRS says the pilot will open to a limited group of people for the 2024 tax season. This will allow the agency to test how the program may work on a national scale in the future. It's getting pricier to stay in Salem for the Halloween season. Stacia Cooper is the interim director for the tourism group Destination Salem. She says some visitors are paying top dollar for short-term rentals in the city. 500 to $1,000 a night, depending on your location. And I know there's a particular, some, you know, themed Airbnb that is charging top dollar and uh, hearsay is up to $4,000 a night. Cooper says high demand and limited supply for places to stay is also driving prices up. She encourages people visiting Salem this month to take public transportation because of limited parking. It's 845. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. 
and MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Lawmakers in the Massachusetts House are set to vote today on a massive new gun control package. The measure would strengthen the state's assault weapons ban, limit where guns can be carried, and crack down on unregistered so-called ghost guns. As WB Wars Walter Wuthman reports, the bill is facing major opposition from gun owners and police. The usually quiet marble hallways of the State House were full of commotion on a recent morning as hundreds of gun owners dressed in jeans and camo descended on the offices of their state representatives. Elevator three and four. Three sportsmen from Ashland were in search of Democrat Jack Lewis. They wanted to confront Lewis about the gun bill, which he co-sponsored. The group finds him in his fourth floor office. Your constituents of mine? Yes, sir. No. Um, where do you live? Do we call you Jack or? Jack, yeah, John Magri of Ashland makes his case against the bill, which would place new restrictions on gun licenses and prohibit carrying firearms into certain public places. Okay. You're, you were sworn in to uphold the Constitution of the United States, correct? Yes, that was yes. In my Okay. So you're directly defying the Second Amendment, um, the way that it's written as is. And uh, like for me, I strongly oppose this bill because of that reason. Lewis encourages them to put their specific concerns in writing. But I can tell you, for every email I get in opposition, there are several emails I get in support of the bill. They all shake hands and leave. Out in the hallway, Magri says he felt good about the interaction. I, I mean, I'm glad he gave us the time and didn't have his office locked and... But I mean, I think it's like most of the other politicians. They're just, they're going to do what they're going to do anyways. But, you know, we got to give it a try, right? <laughs> House leaders revised the bill this fall to address some of the gun owners' concerns. The new language would allow people who already own certain assault-style weapons to keep them. Still, there's strong opposition to the bill, including from a surprising group. The Massachusetts Chiefs of Police Association voted unanimously to oppose the new bill last week. They have a stake in a number of ways. For one, police chiefs approve gun licenses in Massachusetts and would be tasked with enforcing any new regulations. But there's another big reason they oppose the bill. Officers want to be able to freely carry their weapons off-duty. Here's Webster Police Chief Michael Shaw. I can't tell you how many times that I've been off-duty and had to render aid, whether it be in a, something like a motor vehicle accident or you know, seeing a crime in progress, for instance, at a shoplifting or something like that, where you've had to take action. Shaw says there are parts of the bill he's for, like new restrictions on gun parts that people assemble into ghost guns at home. But he thinks that issue should be tackled separately. You know, let's deal with that problem before we deal with, you know, putting all these other more stringent regulations on the lawful gun owners that are doing everything right, are getting their licenses, are getting, you know, properly transferring firearms, properly storing their firearms. Supporters say the bill will improve public safety and won't penalize people who use guns for hunting, sport, or self-defense in their homes. In a statement, House Speaker Ron Mariano said it's, quote, extremely disappointing that this common-sense bill has been met with a blanket no. Gun control advocates are also out in force on Beacon Hill. John Rosenthal, founder of the organization Stop Handgun Violence, testified before lawmakers last week. I firmly believe that this bill will save lives without any inconvenience to law-abiding gun owners. It's a heated fight in a state with some of the strictest gun laws in the country and among the lowest rates of gun violence. The full House is expected to vote on the bill later today. The Senate may not take it up till next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. 
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest out of Israel and the Gaza Strip. That includes President Biden's visit. He's scheduled to speak at any moment. We'll bring that to you live here on 90.9 and on the WBUR app. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital. For expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at McLeanHospital.org. Can the U.S. stand with Israel even as it stands with Ukraine without compromising American military readiness? We are quite confident that we can continue to support both countries as they cope. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We ask the U.S. ambassador to NATO about providing weapons and aid to two allies at once. On the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Palestinian officials are asking President Biden to call for a ceasefire between Israel and Gaza. Members of the House are set to vote today on electing Ohio Republican Jim Jordan as Speaker of the House after he failed to get the necessary support yesterday. And in Massachusetts, Governor Healy is asking lawmakers to approve a $4 billion plan for affordable housing as the state's emergency shelter system reaches its peak. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Innuendo in Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. Mid-60s and partly sunny today. There's a slight chance we'll see some showers late this afternoon. Mostly cloudy tonight in the upper 40s. Then tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 66. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston. Lululemon is joining an exclusive club. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. Learn more at c3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Starting today, athleisure wear maker Lululemon Athletica will debut on the S&P 500. It'll replace Activision Blizzard because Activision Blizzard was acquired by Microsoft. Marketplace's Justin Ho looks at what it means for a company to join the S&P 500. There are plenty of perks that come with an S&P 500 membership card. Being on the S&P 500 gives you more visibility. That's Will Getzman, a finance professor at Yale. He spent decades following what happens when companies join the S&P 500. The big perk is a slice of the more than $5.5 trillion parked in mutual funds and ETFs that simply buy whatever's in the index. When a company's added to something like the S&P 500, a whole bunch of funds buy that firm, and then the price goes up. That investment comes with some complications. Drew Pascarella at Cornell University says companies prefer to be judged on their individual performance, like how well Lululemon's mid-rise pants are selling. But when a company joins an index, those factors can lose relevance. There are institutional investors that are buying and selling an index not based on what Lululemon is doing, but based overall on macroeconomic factors. 
That means big investors might start selling if they're worried about, say, global economic growth, interest rates, or consumer confidence. As opposed to understanding that those macro factors might be more limited in their impact on one company versus others. Big investors have also been getting more aggressive when it comes to environmental and social issues, says Evan Raleigh at the University of Connecticut. There's like a, a social contract that institutional investors believe firms have with society to behave in ways that are pro-social. So those issues will likely become more important for any company that joins the S&P 500. I'm Justin Howe for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down with uh, in the two to six tenths percent range with the Dow futures down 75 points. The yield on the 10-year treasury is 4.870%. After an explosion hit a hospital in Gaza, killing 500 people, Palestinian and Israeli officials blamed each other. Leaders of Arab states called off a planned visit with President Biden, who will instead only visit Israel. His trip was aimed at preventing the Israel-Hamas war from spreading. Concerns over economic consequences of this war take a far back seat to the human tragedy. But there are geopolitical risks to the global economy, as Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer reports. There are lots of ways the Israel-Hamas war could play out. The worst-case scenario, direct conflict between Israel and Iran. The geopolitical pot is just boiling. Bernard Baumol is chief global economist at the Economic Outlook Group. He says if the conflict widened to include Syria, global economic growth could decline next year by as much as 1%. And the global economy would really be on a tightrope over the possibility of a recession. Baumol says a wider conflict could send oil prices up to $120 a barrel. Other, lesser-known commodities could also be affected. Maybe you remember bromine from high school chemistry class. Jesse Colvin is an analyst at Height Capital Markets. It's a key chemical component in electronics, including the manufacturing of semiconductor chips. Colvin says 74% of the world's bromine supply is produced in the Dead Sea, and Israel's bromine exports could be jeopardized if rockets hit Israeli ports. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at viking.com. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. The historic Hollywood writers' strike is over. The actors' strike is not. And if actors aren't acting, all kinds of other TV and film workers are also out of a job. Set builders, editors, employment in this sector is down 45,000 jobs since May. LAist's Robert Garova has more. Greg Gilday is a welder and set builder. He makes spaceships for a living. Not real ones, but the ones like you can see in the new Star Wars Ahsoka series. One must destroy in order to create. But right now, Gilday feels like he's fighting a battle in a galaxy not so far away. Because of the Hollywood stalemate, Gilday has been out of work for months. I, I've dug into my savings quite extensively and still have about $27,000 in debt that I did not have at the, at the end of April, which is the last time I worked. 
He supports the strikers, but the work stoppage is hitting him and thousands of others hard. The Entertainment Community Fund said it's been distributing up to $700,000 each week in emergency grants for struggling workers. Keith McNutt is with the nonprofit and says the strike came just as many workers were still financially recovering from the pandemic. And people, I think, were just starting to rebuild their reserves, their savings for a rainy day, and it started raining before people were ready. In some cases, workers have had to get creative to pay the bills. For the past couple of months, they've held swap meets where prop masters, makeup artists, and costume designers can sell personal belongings. Film editor Deandra Luzon was one of some 70 vendors who showed up to sell. It was really great to see the camaraderie with all of us that are being impacted and just how special that was. Luzon says she made 1800 bucks selling off DVDs from her prized Criterion collection, a Darth Vader nutcracker she bought in Germany, and a special doll she'd wanted to keep in the family. It was a little sad with some of the things. Like, I, I got rid of a Cynthia doll from Rugrats. I was like, well, when I have a girl someday, I'll give her, like, you know, that, that doll. I don't think that's the extent that we should have to go to survive. I don't think it should ever go here. Mostly out of work since November, Luzon says she's gone through her savings, brought in a roommate, and started driving for Uber to make ends meet. In Los Angeles, I'm Robert Garova for Marketplace. And by the way, many employees here at Marketplace are members of the SAG-AFTRA union, but operate under a different contract and are obviously not on strike. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.